0: Okay. At this time, let us uh, look at Luke's gospel, the second chapter. Begin reading with verse 25. We'll read down to verse 38. Luke chapter 2, 25 through 38. Title of the sermon this morning, Why Wait? Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed And there was a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher she was advanced in years having lived with her husband 7 years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was about 84 She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, The privilege and joy that we have had as your children, those who have assembled in the name of Christ, our King, to worship and to magnify the God of heaven. We thank you that we can see in your word truth for living, and we pray as we hear it proclaimed and as we listen to it with attentive hearts that you would indeed speak to us this morning, that your word would be productive and fruitful, that it would accomplish that which you intend. We ask this, O God, in Jesus' name, amen. Why wait? Why wait? If you are like me, you do not enjoy waiting. Waiting is never fun. Whether it's waiting in line or waiting for a show to start or waiting to see the doctor, waiting is not something that we enjoy doing. In fact, recently, in an article that appeared in the Washington Post in 2015, uh, a professor of queuing theory, which, believe it or not, there is such a thing at MIT, Uh, was quoted as saying that altogether some people spend a year or two of their lives waiting in line. Then he went on to say that this number increases if you live and work in a major city where the wait and rush hour traffic can be twice as long or perhaps waiting for other things. Then the article went on and it quoted a study that was done back in the 1950s where a a high-rise office building in Manhattan had a problem because they had recently installed an elevator And the landlord, the one who who managed the apartment building, was receiving complaints that during peak hours, during the morning and in the evening and around lunchtime, uh, the elevator was taking a long time and people had to stand in line and they had to wait for the elevator. And this, of course, made them very unhappy. And so not wanting to lose any tenants, he consulted an engineer and the engineer took a look at the building and he said, well, there's nothing based on the construction of the building that we can do to speed things up. It's just the way things are. Sorry. Sorry. Um, We can't help you. So he decided to ask his staff, those who worked in the building, and they came up with a proposal. They said, well, um, if you were to install mirrors in the hallway, people could look at themselves, they could look at other people, and uh, they might enjoy the waiting process, because after all, they're probably complaining, not because they're waiting, but because they're bored while they're waiting. They don't have anything to do. And so supposedly, and this I don't know if this is a true story or not, but it was quoted in the article, supposedly the landlord did this, he installed mirrors, and he never received another complaint. (laughs) Now, that was in the 1950s. Today, I think it takes a lot more to entertain us. But the idea is that when people are waiting in line, if they have a purpose, if they're waiting, period, if they have a purpose, then it's much easier to wait. It's just part of who we are as human beings. It's built within us. We do not like waiting, but if we know a purpose, if there's a purpose for our wait, then it's easier to make sense of it. Now, as far as the text that we just read this morning, really it is a text, a story about waiting. There are four different groups of people that we'll look at that were waiting. They were spending time waiting. And what we see is that ultimately this waiting is part of God's providence, But it's part of God's providence that you and I uh, interact with, engage on a daily basis, and perhaps do so without being aware of it. And so what we see in this story is three things in particular, which we'll take time to uh, uh, to delve into. The first is we see God's providence. Secondly, we see a divine perspective, a Christ-centered perspective that really literally revolves around the Christ child. And then finally we see patience, patience being the result of God's divine providence and a Christ-centered perspective colliding with one another. And so we'll look at these three things things this morning. That being said, I will say that ultimately what entertains us, if I can be so vulgar, I perhaps should say that what captivates our attention with a divine perspective is not our image as in the story of, Uh, of the high-rise building in the 1950s. People were interested in looking at themselves or perhaps their neighbor in a mirror. But ultimately, when we understand providence and we have a Christ-centered perspective, what captivates our attention is not us, but God. And so we'll see that in this text. But the first point that I want to make is that all four groups, and yes, there are four, there may only appear to be three at first blush, but we're going to look at four. All four groups had an encounter with providence, Now, uh, by providence, I mean the term that is defined in our own confession of faith as God the creator of all things, upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all creatures, actions, and things according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. In other words, God ordains whatever comes to pass. Now, John Flavel, who was a Puritan, Uh, wrote several years ago that providence of God is best viewed backwards. In other words, oftentimes we're so caught up, so engrossed with the ordinary daily activity of our lives that we cannot detect the hand of the divine orchestrating all things according to his sovereign will. However, even though this may be true, the purpose of God's providence may not always be Known or revealed to us, but the reality of God's providence is something that you and I are commanded to be aware of in Scripture. And it's something ultimately that will change our perspective. So let's go ahead and look at these four different groups and see how they encountered God's divine providence. The first is Simeon. He's described here in the text as a devout and righteous man, someone who was waiting. Again, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We don't know how often or how long he had come to the temple. We don't know if this was a daily routine or if it was something that he did monthly or how frequently it occurred. We don't even know why he came to the temple at this particular time, apart from the fact that God so ordained it. But he came to the temple on this day, much like any others, probably not really expecting anything to be different, although he was waiting Waiting can become such a habit that we don't really have the expectancy that we're ever going to get what we're waiting for. So perhaps that's the situation he was in. He came to the temple. He had been waiting for so many years. And on this particular day, he happened to come into the temple during the presentation of a child being presented before God, an infant and his mother That according to the Levitical law were declared impure because if you're familiar with the the law of, of Moses, the law of God in the Old Testament, you know that anytime somebody gave birth to a child, they were ritually, ceremonially impure, both they and their child. So in order to fulfill the law of God and be pure again, they had to bring an offering, a sacrifice to the temple, preferably sheep, a lamb. And they would be purified. If they could not afford to bring a lamb, then they could bring two turtle doves, which is apparently what Moses, or what uh, Mary rather, and Joseph brought with them. So at this particular time, they were in the temple. The Holy Spirit immediately prompted Simeon that this helpless babe that Mary had in her arms was the one for whom he had been waiting. The consolation of Israel. It was a person and particularly a helpless child. So he's the first example of God's providence when he just so happened to be led of the Holy Spirit to go into the temple at this divine moment when he would have an encounter with the Holy Family, with Mary, with Joseph, and ultimately with Christ. Now, the next providential occurrence is that of Mary and Joseph. They're the second party here in the story. Now, why were they in the temple to begin with? Well, because you may remember, according to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, Mary and Joseph came together. They were uh, engaged to be married, but before they were married, Mary was discovered to be with child. And she uh, was visited by an angel, and this child was none other than the Son of God. She had miraculously conceived, and the baby that was growing in her womb was the very promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was foretold by the prophets, would come and would ultimately save his people from their sins. Well, Joseph was initially skeptical, but after being visited by an angel himself, he was informed that this was indeed the case, that they were to give birth to the Son of God, the one who would not only save his people from their sins, but also would be the dividing line of human history. The one whose life, death, burial, and resurrection would mean that human history would never be the same. And so here they are. They're in the temple obeying the law of God as foretold or as uh, commanded in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. They're waiting. They're waiting in the temple. What are they waiting for? They're waiting to offer a sacrifice to God that will render them ceremonially clean. Now, the third character who's waiting here in the temple according to the text, is Anna. Again, there's not a lot of detail the scripture gives about Anna uh, other than the fact that she appears to be uh, completely dedicated, her life is completely dedicated to the worship of God. She's in the temple day and night, whether or not she lived there or whether or not she just uh, frequented the temple so much that it felt like she lived there. And um, many of you can attest to that this week, having been here for VBS, perhaps you feel like you live here as well. Um, But Anna, she was in the temple day and night, and she was fasting and praying and seeking God. And it just so happened that the universes of these three parties collided when Anna walks into the temple. She sees Simeon. She hears him bless God and bless the parents. She sees the parents. She sees the Christ child, and immediately she glorifies God. She realizes that this child is the one for whom she has been waiting Now, the fourth group are the people to whom Anna, the prophetess, shares the good news. In a sense, she was the first evangelist. She was the first one to go and proclaim to a group of people that the Messiah, the Christ, had come. We don't know, again, much about this group. We don't know if they were a large group or a small group, if they were mainly centered around the temple or if they were spread throughout Judea. What we do know is that they were waiting for something. They were waiting for redemption. And so all four groups of people, Simeon, who's waiting for the consolation of Israel, Mary and Joseph, who are waiting to fulfill the command of God and offer up the sacrifice for the sake of their own purification, Anna, who's been waiting for redemption, and then the group of people who as well are waiting for redemption, their universes collide. And they realize and they're able to trace the divine hand of providence, bringing them together at one central moment. Now, providence is never about you and I. Providence is ultimately about God. Providence is ultimately about God so ordaining even the mundane circumstances of our lives so that we glorify him. And at this particular moment, providence brought all four groups together centered around Christ. Now, I want to pause for a moment. And I want you to think of something for which you have been waiting. Everyone's waiting. All of us are waiting for something. It might be the salvation of a loved one or peace amid life's storm. Maybe you're waiting for something, but you don't even know what it is. You're just waiting for the world to change. Maybe you're waiting for it, but you haven't found it. You don't know how to describe it or articulate it. Think about your deepest longing. Silently name it to yourself. Think about it. Name it. Keep it in your mind. Now let me jump to my next point, which is perspective. So we have this collision of providence. And something happened when God's providential purpose... In the lives of these three parties, excluding the party that was waiting for redemption that Anna proclaimed the gospel to, these three parties, when God's divine providence intersected in their lives, something happened. Years of waiting and longing, countless days and nights of prayer and fasting, the hope and dreams of two young parents were all put into perspective. And the perspective centered around Christ, a helpless, infant in the arms of his mother. Now here's the startling part. When this perspective was obtained both by Simeon, by Anna, as well as Mary and Joseph, it was quite different from what they expected. They were waiting for one thing and when they obtained the perspective of a Christ-centered purpose, their perspective was quite different from what they expected. For Simeon, To him, according to the text, it had been revealed by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he visibly saw the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, the consolation of Israel. But his first words in the psalm of praise that have been recorded, it's a series of five psalms that are recorded to us in the first two chapters there of Luke. His first statement is, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, the perspective of God's providential purpose in his life made even death seem bearable. Note also that His, what he previously thought was simply the consolation of Israel. When a Christ-centered perspective was obtained, was redefined in light of who Jesus was and what, became, what was simply Israel's consolation became his own peace. So what he was expecting and what he saw was different. Secondly, the perspective of Mary and Joseph was challenged as well. We note, according to the text, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They marveled at what Simeon had declared. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also now there are two things to note about that first that Christ is identified as I said earlier as the dividing line of history that Simeon was stating something about this infant that was in Mary's arms that he could not be simply a mere man but rather that he would be the dividing line of human history that men would either reject him or they would accept him but to be indifferent to him was not an option By their rejection, they would bring damnation. By their acceptance, they would obtain salvation. Simeon was declaring that this Christ child was the perspective that could put God's providence in its proper order. That saw the providential hand of God behind the flow of history not as being inconsequential, but as being of the ultimate consequence. Because the infant child would be the one who would change the course of human destiny. Secondly, the news that Simeon shared with Mary was also a surprise. Not only did Mary and Joseph marvel, but Mary heard that her destiny was to suffer because of the suffering of her son. Simeon said that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He said that parenthetically in your text. It's in parentheses. He said that to Mary as an aside that this child... Not only will he be the one who, who has an arm figuratively that will extend all the way back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve, but also will extend all the way forward to the end of time. So cosmically, his birth puts every human being's life in perspective. But then he individually addresses her and says, you're going to experience sorrow. You're going to suffer. A sword will pierce your own soul because of his sufferings. Her destiny was to suffer. And so that perspective, no doubt, was more than what she had bargained for, perhaps more than what she had known up to that period of time. Anna immediately recognized that Christ was the Redeemer. She proclaimed that Christ, to those who were waiting for redemption in Israel, that he was the one they had been waiting for. And so suffering and even death is redefined when our purpose, when our perspective is Christ. Life takes on new meaning. We realize that our existence is not haphazard and meaningless, but we are made for a purpose. More importantly, we see that waiting, that potentially long and arduous task of entertaining a heart's deep longing, becomes meaningful. That there's a purpose for waiting. That waiting in and of itself is part of God's divine providential Plan. So, what does this mean for your personal weight? I asked you earlier to identify what you're waiting for. Think of what it is that you're waiting for and view your own weight through the lens of Christ's incarnation. Some of you have been waiting for a child, you've longed for a child. Some of you have watched other parents around you conceive and give birth, and you've been unable to do so. Some of you are waiting for a spouse, a husband, or a wife. Your heart aches with loneliness and you desire companionship. Some of you are waiting for restored health or for your depression to be alleviated, for comfort in the midst of life's storms. Well, friend, I I wish that I could stand here this morning and assure you that a Christ-centered perspective means that you will obtain for certain to the object of your affection. But I cannot, I cannot, but I can assure you that Christ will become your great affection. That when God's work of providence in your life brings you to confront the person of Jesus Christ, I can assure you that Christ will become your great affection. And he will make all other affections and desires fell and pale in comparison. A Christ-centered perspective gives us a greater desire a desire to see Christ's glory in every area of life and acknowledge that God in Christ is governing every minute of our lives for the sake of his divine purpose. Now, I want you again to think of your deepest longing, what you're waiting for, that thing that you identified earlier. Think of it. And I want you to measure it in light of Christ's redeeming purpose. You may marvel like Mary and Joseph. You may be surprised. You may be stunned to realize that the consolation for which you have been waiting is not in the form that you expected. But I assure you that in Christ, he will satisfy every longing of our heart. He will purify. He will define our desires. He will refine them according to his divine plan. Okay, and the third point that I want to make here in the text is patience. When providence and perspective collide, patience is the outcome. When God's divine providence, which by the way, every individual in here this morning, God's divine providence is active in your life. Because God ordains all that comes to pass. God orchestrates every occurrence in your life. The fact that you're in here is not coincidental. You may have thought, well, I'm just going to see my child sing. And that's a good purpose, but the fact that you're here is not a coincidence. If you're waiting, that waiting is part of God's providential plan. And when God's divine providence and a Christ-centered perspective collide, patience is the outcome. Now, what is patience? Well, I think for the sake of the text, we can define patience simply as contentment in waiting. Think again of the story of the people waiting for an elevator. As long as they were entertained, they were content to wait. Well, there is a contentment that redefines our waiting. So for Simeon, for Mary and Joseph, for Anna, that contentment come, comes from realizing that Christ is the purpose for their weight. This contentment can only be obtained from a Christ-centered perspective. Now there's a story that is told in Scripture about Jacob and Rachel and I think it illustrates this point really well. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of early Israel and he loved Rachel very much. If you know the story you know where I'm going. He had to marry Leah even though he really didn't love her because he was deceived on his wedding night. But He loved Rachel. He longed for Rachel. And so there's a a very beautiful verse in Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. Laban, who was Rachel's father, made Jacob serve seven years for her hand in marriage. And Genesis 29, 20 says this. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. In other words, he had to wait. He was waiting. Now, thankfully, his waiting had a designated period of time. For some of us, we wait in perpetuity. We wait, and it feels like forever. He waited for seven years. The difference is that it seemed like nothing. It seemed like a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel. His purpose, his perspective, defined his waiting and waiting was not laborious. Waiting was meaningful. So the story that I just told you about Jacob and Rachel, it illustrates that when we see why we are waiting, patience will soon follow. God's divine patience. Now, I can already hear you. Many of you are saying, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer, but I need patience. Probably something I hear more often. Probably something I've said more often than any other virtue. We bemoan our need for patience when what we really should be looking for is perspective. Sometimes we jump to patience without realizing that God's divine providence in our life leads us to an awareness of his purpose. Now, that awareness will not in this life ever be complete. And we, like John Flavel says, may be able to interpret the events of our life best looking backwards. But an awareness that God is working in every circumstance. That God ordains all that comes to pass. And he's doing it for the sake of Christ. For the sake of his work in your life. That realization gives us patience. So it's perspective that we should be looking for and patience will soon follow. A Christ-centered perspective enables us to trust God's work of providence. So that we are not deterred by waiting. A Christ-centered perspective might surprise you like it did Mary and Joseph. It might surprise us when we realize that it comes in a different package than what we expected. But one thing is certain. A Christ-centered perspective will always reframe your circumstances. Now, to conclude and to apply this, I want you to think again of what your heart has been longing for. What you've been waiting for. And I want you to measure it in light of the fact, the reality that Jesus Christ came and died. He lived on this earth a perfect life and he died and he rose again so that you and I might live. Maybe what you're waiting for, you didn't realize, but maybe what you're waiting for is him. Maybe you have never surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you have never acknowledged Him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you have never repented of your sins and turned from Him. If you've not, then I can assure you that today, at least an aspect of your wait can be over. That you can know the goodness of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, this Messiah. But regardless of what you're waiting for, when we understand God's providential work in our life, and we see our life through the lens of a Christ-centered perspective, then we are able to enjoy God's good patience. Recently, my wife graciously gifted me with a fully decorated office without me knowing about it. Many of you have seen it, you know it's a blessing. She did a great job, but uh, she was able somehow to keep it hidden from me for several months. And so there was one day in particular, one Friday, when I was off and I was at home, that she simply told me she needed to run some errands. It was 10 a.m. when she left the house, and uh, I thought, okay, no problem. 2 p.m. rolls around, she's still not there. 3 p.m. rolls around, she's still not there. 4 p.m. rolls around, I'm thinking, okay, what errand could possibly be taking this long? My youngest daughter had had her nap, the two sons were getting anxious, I'm thinking, okay, it's about time that you come back now. (laughs) It wasn't until the following, that was a Friday, it wasn't until the following Sunday when I walked in my office and I looked around and I saw everything that she'd been up to, that I was was able to understand and appreciate and actually feel very happy that I didn't complain too much. Of the good gift that she was giving me. Now I say that because had I known. The gift that she was giving. It may have been much easier for me to have endured that long Friday. God does not always reveal to us his purpose. But he always reveals to us. The fact that he is working for our good. In his glory. That is a certainty of scripture. And so knowing that gives us. Patience. Paul says it like this in Romans eight thirty two. He said, he who would not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, measure your heart's desire, that thing which you've been waiting for by the incarnation of Christ. The fact that Christ, his coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection is a demonstration of God's great love to you and God's faithfulness in your life that regardless of what your circumstances might be, his providential hand is ordaining all that you are experiencing. Seeing things through the incarnation, the lens of a Christ-centered perspective, enables us to have hope. And as we find ourselves as Christians in the 21st century sandwiched between the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and his return, we're given this task of waiting. We are waiting, individually but corporately, not as those who have no hope in this life, because Christ is even now redeeming all things, but as those who are awaiting the completion of redemption. And a Christ-centered perspective reveals the truth behind our wait. Even though this world may seem dark, Even though the sin may seem strong and the wrong may seem great, we know that God is the ruler yet. And so this divine perspective, Christ-centered perspective, hopefully will create within us patience and peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even as we have heard in your word the value of waiting, we know that there are... Those here this morning who have waited for salvation. And so it is for them that we pray that you would make yourself known to them, Lord Jesus, that you would save them, that they would leave here this morning believing and professing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know also that for those who have believed and have believed for many years, there's still a longing within each heart. And we ask, O God, that you would bring home to us the veracity of your word, the truth of your scripture, the reality that your providence orchestrates all that we experience. And we pray that our perspective might be centered on Christ our Lord and that the gift of that perspective would be your divine patience. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.